Hello, it's Beverly here, Beverly Cuddy, and this is The Devil Wears Dog Hair. Chapter One, The Good Lord. When I was growing up, all the Viscounts I knew were very posh. They had shiny foil green wrappers and a creamy mint centre. Showing my age, eh? Do they still make them? I must investigate. Most people would assume Viscount Rothermere and I would have little in common. He was an elderly billionaire newspaper magnate, one of the richest men in Britain. I was a fairly young girl from Liverpool who was probably one of the poorest women in Britain. But if you really love dogs, perhaps you recognise it in others. Very few very few people in the sprawling Daily Mail publishing empire had ever even met Lord Rothermere, which made it very easy to imagine him as being terrifying, eccentric and just generally, well, unrelatable. I hadn't known his reputation when I first rather bluntly told him he was pointing at a dog that wasn't a Japanese Akita in a book. I would come to appreciate how very rare it was for anyone to ever tell him he was wrong, even when he was wrong. The look he gave me, well, it spoke volumes. The, pe the look the people in the room gave me, again, showed that maybe I was a bit odd. No one thought I'd last. I obviously had heard all the lurid rumours. Lord Rothermere's life was always being lampooned in Private Eye, one of my favourite publications. They called his wife Bubbles. And, oh dear, just Google it. It's, well, there's, oh dear, yes, they used to say some awful things. But one rumour I heard rang true. And I recognised the man that I came to know. Lord R had apparently enjoyed the relative anonymity of living in New York, away from his wife. While strolling along Fifth Avenue, a puppy in a pet shop window made eye contact with him. Over the following days and weeks, he noted that the same Akita Poppy was growing very fast and very large. His sell-by date was soon to expire. And what would happen then? When Lord R saw a note on the cage saying reduced, he felt compelled to rescue the pup. He knew it was wrong. Even back then, we all know it is never rescuing when you buy a dog from a pet shop. Ryo Ma was huge and Lord R quite an elderly man by this stage. No yellow cab was going to stop for this chap struggling with a huge wriggling dog. He struggled several blocks to wherever he was calling home those days. He liked to stay places where people didn't know who he was. He soon became aware 
of the UK's illogical quarantine situation that we had back then. We were all terrified of rabies, so we were locking everything up for six months, regardless of the fact that actually rabies incubation period could sometimes be more than that. And you could actually do a blood test and vaccines and lots of... um, Anyway, we'd scared ourselves silly and we still had six months quarantine. But Lord Rothermere wasn't going to put his gorgeous dog in solitary for six months. It wouldn't be fair. So he did what every billionaire does. He decided to live in Paris and New York and commute to work in London. Brian Ma was soon to have a playmate and another Rikita joined and Lord Ra, Lord R loved nothing more than driving around the French countryside in a battered up battered old Porsche with his two dogs by his side. That was until the day he had a terrible crash. He woke up in hospital to find that one of the dogs had been instantly killed. Ryu Ma had run off, absolutely terrified. His first thought was to call the office. He phoned the Daily Mail and he demanded that anybody who could speak French were to to leave their desk immediately and travel to France and find his dog. Well, wouldn't you do that if if, if you owned that empire? Yeah, I think you would, I would. Anyway, the very clever girl that found the dog was rewarded with a huge promotion, um, the Hollywood job. I don't think the Hollywood job actually existed, but that's what she wanted, so that's what she got. So in my book, and this is my book, Lord Rothermere was a good man, a man who put his dogs above all else. I also thought, but didn't tell him, I thought he looked a little bit like a clean-shaven Father Christmas. Those steely eyes, I think they had a bit of a twinkle in them. But it was when he was talking about dogs. Well, at some point, we started talking about books that weren't dog books. And Veer told me his favourite author was Evelyn Waugh. I was surprised. I wasn't exactly academic, but one of the few books I had read was Brideshead Revisited. In fact, I'd named one of my gorgeous brown bearded collie puppies Aloysius, or Teddy for short. But it wasn't that book he was interested in. It was The Loved Ones. And I recommend it to you. It's it's quite strange, but it's He says it inspired him to launch Dogs Today magazine. Now, you'll think that very odd if you know the book. The book is all about um, the very peculiar Los Angeles um, business of um, hmm, embalming people and dogs and funerals generally. It's it's quite it's quite an odd book. It's a while since I read it, but it's still left an impression anyway. He thought we should have a regular obituary column for dogs. Um, And he wanted a magazine that would give the pet dog a voice. This was music to my ears. 
Now, I thought it was a good idea. He thought it was a good idea. Absolutely everybody else in the Daily Mail, between him and me, thought it was a really, really, really stupid idea. But nobody dared tell him. And the obituary idea, especially, was apparently definitive proof that he was barking mad. But he was right. Obituaries proved to be one of the most important sections of our magazine. And even the most, well, frosty, stuck-up sub-editor that I've had the misfortune to be pushed onto me by someone else in the group still had a a bit of a tear in their eye when they read that page. Um, You can't read those dog obituaries and not sniffle because they're from the heart. They're not copied out of last week's paper like many of the human obituaries. These are all really raw and honest. So we've had obituaries in the magazine for 30 years. People want to mark the passing of their best friend. But back in the 1990s, it was still, well, seemed as a bit odd to love your dog to that degree. We were all being a bit stiff upper lip back then. There was not really any acknowledgement of the huge trauma that was caused by pet loss. Dogs were not yet widely accepted as part of the family. My bosses, unfortunately, knew that Lord R, normally frosty, difficult, distant in their eyes, had a massive soft spot for dogs and that this magazine was his weakness and that he really wouldn't care how much money it lost. Hmm. I didn't know this at the time. I didn't know how very vulnerable that would make both me and the magazine. Episode 2, Chapter 2, The Leaving of Liverpool. Let me take you back to 1984. Lionel Richie was saying, hello, is it me you're looking for? And Frankie Goes to Hollywood wanted everyone to relax, but not on Radio 1. I am 22, wish I was, five foot two with almost blue eyes, one of which doesn't really work properly. I still live with my parents, Betty and Don, in the little green oasis between Liverpool and Manchester. Do you think that was where Liam and Noel got the name from? Probably not. City dwellers rather rudely call people of this area woollybacks because they are more, there are more sheep than people. I'd been away to college, but unlike my brother, I kept coming home. My brother went to Oxford and um, was just brilliant. Uh, yeah, enough. Anyway, I'm going to go on and on about that. So back to the story. But unlike my brother, Neil, I kept coming home. I had far too many bearded collies to take with me or even to be considered normal. I was too timid to drive a car. I was devoid in any self-belief outside of things canine. A few months earlier, 
I had managed to upset my non-doggy boyfriend by saying at Liverpool Lime Street that he should only phone me when he had something interesting to say. Consequently, I never heard from him ever again. As there was a terrible shortage of heterosexual men at dog shows, this was the equivalent of joining a convent. I had already dated enough pedigree pet food salesmen to conclude that this top breeder doesn't really recommend it. My name is Beverly. I'm a dogaholic and I'm convinced I will never, ever have a boyfriend ever again. I write in my diary that I will soon start to wear tweed skirts without any irony and smell faintly of winnelot. It all started to get really hairy when I was 11. My dad had rashly promised me a horse if I got a scholarship to the local posh girls' school, Merchant Taylor's School for Girls. He could have said unicorn. He really did think it was that unlikely. I let him off quite lightly when I changed my request to a dog. I'd fallen in love with a photo of a bearded collie in the dumpy book of dogs that my parents had rather sneakily given me. The shaggy dog seemed to smile at me whenever I turned the page. The breed was as rare as hen's teeth back then. It's getting that way now. But we found a huge litter and I picked the pup I wanted. The breeder, Shirley Holmes, sadly, recently departed, said I was wrong, that I had selected a male pup. And I quite rudely corrected her. Shall I admit, I was probably a very irritating, precocious child. I suspect you and I would have hated me. Long story short, Chi Chi was very naughty and funny. And when we took her to puppy training classes on the wrong night, we crashed Ringcraft and discovered she was the best bearded collie Jeff Corish had ever seen. And if you know anything about dog shows, you know Jeff. Even with the huge handicap of an annoying little brat like me showing her, Chi Chi couldn't lose. So that's how the Cuddick family became addicted. The lowest point was probably when my parents helped me play truant from my Mocco levels so that I could show Chi Chi at Crufts. And we got caught out, of course. More worryingly, my devoted parents mortgaged themselves to the hilt to buy our very remote dog palace. So the dogs could woof and there was no one to hear. And do I hear violins? There was no one to go out with me either. Back to 1984, Chi Chi's beautiful granddaughter Winnie has just given birth to a gorgeous litter of puppies. There is one that stands out that is technically perfect in every way. All I saw back then was angles and bones. In time-honoured tradition, the pup was named after one of my absent brother's very posh girlfriends. Charity Fawn was, even for him, a very odd name. But as the pup was fawn, it seemed like fate. But it was rather a mouthful. Charity Fawn soon morphed into Sally Prawn. Sally was a prawn cracker, the best dog we'd ever bred, the show dog of our dreams. Sally was such a beautiful puppy that she turned even rabid dog haters brains to mush. 
She was a fawn, the rarest colour of beardies, and her eyes were still baby blue when they first locked onto me. While she was technically perfect, and I couldn't wait to show her, she had other plans. In my defence, I was only 22 and not yet cynical enough to realise that being so completely perfect, an unforeseen plot twist was inevitable. Back in the 1980s, no one had yet invented the internet. Well, if they had, we didn't have it in Nosley Village. But I was ready. I had a strangely spongy Sinclair Spectrum and a printer that used silver paper. If we'd had Google, I'd have been looking up parvovirus. In 1978, this scary new pathogen had suddenly started killing dogs. No one yet knew how to treat it. There were lurid rumours that it had been manufactured in a laboratory. It managed to find its way to our remote dog palace in the surprisingly leafy outskirts of Liverpool. The only one of our dogs to get it was, of course, Sally. She had just been vaccinated with the latest drug and despite making every visitor stand in bleach, the signs were unmistakable. Everything on the inside of Sally ended up on the floor and the walls. So aggressive was this purge that blood was very quickly coming out of both ends. Our young vet probably saved her life. She was brutally honest when she admitted that all the dogs she had hospitalised so far with Parvo had just given up and died. There was no point, she said. We should just take her home and try to keep her spirits and her liquids topped up. In practical terms, that meant I was to become Sally's human drip. Our purpose-built puppy room became her emergency ward. I made her comfortable on my lap. Beside me a timer, a syringe, a clipboard, copious amounts of paper towel and a bin. Electrolyte solutions and painful buscapan injections into the muscle on the back of her neck were the only medications the vet could recommend. She revealed that most dogs died within 24 to 48 hours. Every 15 minutes, I would syringe the clear liquid into the back of Sally's mouth. Yeah, no needle on there, just you know, squirt. And I'd write down the time. The interval between her throwing it all back up was highly significant. We could only have one painful buscapan injection every 24 hours. Distressingly, the decibels of her scream would give us a clue as to how much fight she had left. The drug slowed the vomiting, just enough for a little of the liquid to be absorbed. It was dehydration that killed the dogs. Those hours alone with Sally were some of the best and the worst of my life. Her incredible bravery and trust very definitely changed the course of my life. I started to see the beautiful dog within, and I don't mean her stomach lining, although I saw enough of it. We began the journey not knowing how long she would survive and assuming that each 15 minute interval on the chart might be her last. My hand was always stroking her little tummy so I could feel the first tensing and have the paper towel ready to quietly capture the latest emission and reassure her. We talked. Well, she listened. Sally was a great listener. Her little tail wagged at all the right moments and when she looked into my eyes, I felt I could do anything. 
Even though her daily injection meant terrible pain, she always wagged her tail and licked the hand of the vet, who was herself increasingly tearful. Sally looked more like an empty pyjama case, a precious stiff teddy bear with all the stuffing knocked out of her. Today's scream hardly troubled those in the waiting room. Had she had enough, we asked each other. Were we just being cruel? I looked down at Sally, so skinny and terribly weak, her once beautiful fur coat now two sizes too big. I felt the blood of silent tears bouncing off my arm. Sally looked up at me with those impossibly big blue eyes and gently wagged her now scrawny tail. Sally wasn't giving up, so how could I? She clung clung to life for five long days and nights. Each quarter I hydrated her, quarter of an hour that is, I hydrated her and recorded how long she kept the liquid down. Mum and Dad sat with her while I took comfort breaks, but I didn't dare go to sleep in case she died. But according to the chart, she hadn't thrown up the special life-giving liquid for ages. Had catching the sick and binning it become so automatic that I just forgot to record it? Either way, it was time for another squirt uh, from the syringe, hopefully. My ears were still straining for the first sounds of Sally retching. My hand gently rubbed her pale little belly, but there were no telltale nasty spasms. I had to call the vet for instructions as I had no idea what to do when Sally stopped being sick. We'd never even considered it was possible. Dogs usually died of parvo in this era. I took champagne and chocolates when we went to the vets one last time. Sally licked her, despite how much the vet had 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 to hurt her in the last week. That first gentle meal Sally ate was a huge milestone. Sadly, as parvo is such a nasty and contagious illness, Sally's life had to be further damaged by the need to quarantine her, to stop the spread of this deadly disease. It was this lack of socialisation that would scar her much more than the physical illness. Sally loved everyone she'd already met, but she was to distrust all others. Of course, she'd never, ever now be a show dog. Other top breeders were bemused. Why still keep her if she couldn't be a champion? Sally would cower and shake while still looking impossibly cute. She looked as vulnerable as Bambi, but like Greta Garbo, she really just wanted to be left alone. But not totally alone. Sally wanted to follow me everywhere. Today, we'd call it separation anxiety. Back then, I just called it love. My dad's brand of love was strong too. It had meant he had taken a lot of time off work to drive me to dog shows. I was still too afraid, despite passing my test first time. There'd been a bloody coup at his work. He was horribly disappointed by his partner's disloyalty. And Liverpool was not an easy place to be suddenly out of work. My days of being a spoilt brat were definitely numbered. I needed to find a way to keep my numerous bearded collies in the manner to which they had become accustomed. It was time for me to find a career. While a student, I had written my history dissertation on the concept of cruelty in Victorian England. It was an alternative history of the RSPCA, really. 
Did you know they were accused of being anti-Semitic back then? Well, they were. Books from this era were scarce, but the ancient Manchester-based Our Dogs newspaper had some. And that's how I first encountered the boss, Vince Hogan. Everyone thought he looked spookily like the then famous cheesy TV detective Shoestring. I thought he must have somehow detected some early journalistic potential in me as he asked me to start reporting. But in hindsight, there were very few people prepared to work for a free quarter page advert in the R-Dogs annual. Regardless of the lack of wage, Vince had helped me put a very shaky and inappropriate white stiletto boot, it was the 1980s, remember, on the rickety doggy journalism ladder. Looking back, Sally had also changed my viewpoint forever. I was now defining myself as a dog lover, not just a dog show lover. Still not a lover, though. Did I mention the lack of a social life? I think I might have done. The internet, never mind internet dating, still hadn't been invented and the postman and the milkman were already spoken for. There was not even a sniff of romance. Well, there were a few dates with a promising, gorgeous, many times divorced older man with a very impressive Afghan hound. He treated me with tremendous respect and remarkable restraint, unfortunately, and came out shortly after we split up, of course. For some reason, I didn't choose life in the 1980s. I became a goth overnight. The bathroom floor was also forever transformed by the black hair dye, much to my parents' annoyance. Previously, I was invisible to other students. I liked being called Cleopatra and could live with Morticia. But when a chap called Byron started calling me the one-eyed dog breeder, well, it hurt. Showing a champion bearded collie as a child, I'd always been a bit odd. The average age at shows was 40 plus and most people were allergic to kids. But no one raised an eyebrow when I appeared in what looked like a very bad black wig. Then again, no one stared at Pat, who always wore a trilby, chewed a piece of straw menacingly and layered her men's trousers with a blue nylon overall. No one questioned why the glamorous Pam still had a beehive that was possibly last combed in 1962. I was in a pack of people who didn't want to fit in. Our dog's weekly newspaper boss, Shoestring Double Vince, had recklessly let me loose with a reporter's notebook among these huge characters. I had no journalistic training, but he still started me off with a front page lead. I probably imagined that people savoured every word of that very wordy report from the Indian summer of the Driffield Championship show. But in reality, they just looked at the photos to see who'd won. Even though I wasn't being paid in anything other than free ads, I got to stay in the same hotel as all the judges and attended their extraordinary dinner dances. I started to see the dog show world from every angle. This was my real education, not university. My interest in winning had started to wane. I came to realise that dog showing was a very human game. And besides, the beautiful form-bearded collie I was coming home to, my Sally, had made it clear she didn't want to be a show dog. She was now so shy of strangers that she would elegantly slink to the floor as soon as a judge looked at her. Some serious show types openly expressed astonishment, calling her a passenger. But she was the love of my life, with or without any rosettes. My parents' finances were getting increasingly tight. 
I needed to start earning some money and keep my huge family of dogs in the manner to which they had become accustomed. I asked Vince for a proper job, but the then proprietor, the very posh Richard Marples, offered a salary from the era when his Tweedy plus fours were fashionable. The editor of their rival, Dog World, Ferrolith Hamilton, rather oddly headhunted me. Feffy, as I was told to call her, had been reading my atrocious drivel, but still offered me a job. The money was better, and I'd be learning from newspaper journalists, like her husband, Stafford Summerfield, who had been editor of the News of the World, well, the Manchester office. She even offered to put me up in a beautiful little cottage where I could live rent-free until I decided whether I really wanted to relocate. I'd have to move from Merseyside to Kent. I later discovered I would be living in the dead centre of sleepy Ashford, in a very pretty graveyard, quite appropriate for a goth, I suppose. My bottom lip is quivering even now. I was going to be living alone for the first time. I would miss Sally so much, especially on dark nights. And yes, without any prospect of a boyfriend either. That too. Chapter 3. Gone with the Wind Moving south didn't require me to show a passport, but there was a language barrier. Many folk wouldn't, would find me saying bath or grass inexplicably hilarious. I was dogless for the first time and had taken up running all the way home from the dog world office. It was only 100 metres, but I was fast. I'd watched too many episodes of Scooby-Doo to dawdle in a graveyard. At rival R Dogs, I had the glamorous job of dog show reporter. At Dog World, I was a sub. Every morning, I had to move an enormous pile of handwritten show critiques from one basket to another. They needed deciphering and chopping down. Some were jealous of my position, as the proprietor had kindly given me the very scary cottage to live in. My immediate boss was consequently very keen to put me in my place. Her version of the alpha role was to force me to make everyone tea. I was tempted to pee submissively into her mug, but no one would probably have noticed. I was terrible at making tea. I eventually realised that the cottage didn't have a washing machine. My mum thought it was far too far away to send stuff home, so she arranged for me to be adopted by a very kind beardy lady who lived nearby. She didn't have facial hair, by the way, she had bearded collies. She had three very dutiful sons. I think she deserves a name check. Maureen Davenport. She is a wonderful woman. The dutiful sons were told they must collect me and my dirty washing every Friday evening. In exchange for a box of Thornton's Viennese truffles, mm, I haven't had any breakfast yet, I would be fed, washed and returned. I really do wish she'd adopt me now. I'd sometimes come home to find the paper's top columnist fast asleep on my sofa. The elderly Stafford Summerfield was the owner's husband. His writing was the best thing in the paper. He reveled in teasing the Kennel Club, even though he was a member himself. 
I loved the chance to talk to him about the future of dogs and what he thought was wrong with the kennel club. His bits in the paper seemed so much more interesting than the boring old show reports. But Boss Feffy always pointed out that if the critique was about your own dog, it would matter very much that everything was spelt correctly. I'd usually try and hitch a lift to dog shows to see my parents. But as Sally, my beloved beardy and favourite, was too shy to be shown, I'd only ever see her relatives. I really missed her. One night, when particularly homesick, I oddly decided to throw a party to make some new friends. A younger colleague was a scooter boy and what seemed to be the whole cast of Quadrophenia arrived in my boss's living room. The only other guests to show up were some old university friends now working in London. They'd come down on the train so couldn't stay very long or at least was their excuse for leaving very early. There was an awkward moment when one of the Parker clan noticed that my uni friend, Punky Pete, it was a sarcastic nickname, he was really a not particularly academic nerd, had a penguin classic sticking out of his tweedy coat pocket. A book, not the chocolate biscuit. There was a shy chap in the London group. We made eye contact, but didn't talk, even though... I was, bizarrely, the only girl in a very small room. The two tribes didn't exactly go to war, but they certainly didn't merge. There was a very loud knock on the door, and a breathless man in a vest and silky shorts ran straight through the house into the kitchen and started doing the washing up. He was ever so helpful and made many more friends that night than I did. He left for London uh, with the renamed Pretentious Pete. It turned out he was an an escaped prisoner who had run off during a prison boxing match. Would I ever escape this very boring, dogless, manless dog world? I was a junior reporter at our dogs. I developed a bit of an unlikely requited crush on an older chap who ran an exquisite dog statue business. Philip was terribly posh. He had floppy hair and, come rain or shine, wore a long weathered barber coat, the one with a cape. In my memory, he has now morphed into Hugh Grant. But Hugh hadn't been invented then. There hadn't even been one wedding, never mind a funeral. Philip loathed manning his trade standard dog shows and was hilariously miserable. We would often share a chased coffee in the rain at various exotic locations like Blackpool or Leeds. But now I was desk bound at Dog World. I was no longer part of the glamorous dog show circuit. One afternoon, deeply engrossed in subbing Pamela Crossstern's best in show critique from McGullen Merseyside's limited show, I saw the elegant Hugh Philip Grant a few feet away from my desk. He was having a guided tour, organised by someone very assertive in the advertising department. Our eyes met across the stuffy open-plan office, and he stuttered adorably, totally surprised to see me. Uh, Oh, uh, uh, my God, 
You look terrible, he spluttered. He later apologised and clarified he'd never seen me look so miserable. Show subbing was obviously making me sad. That and not having Sally with me. Or having a boyfriend. He was insistent I should try to escape dog world immediately. Perhaps he was right. Around this time, I heard of a house party being organised in London by some of my old student friends. It was on the night after a dog show I was judging up north. I was hitching a lift back as far as London with my old R-Dog's boss, Vince, a.k.a. Shoestring. While he seemed all grown up, he wasn't really that much older than me. And when he heard there was a student party in the offing, he was intrigued and asked if he could tag along. We just stopped off for something to eat at a little Italian restaurant around the corner and Vince was interrogating me for Dog World Insider Secrets, like who was going to take over writing the English Toy Terrier breed notes. The waiters were very friendly and when I happened to mention we were off to a party around the corner, they all wanted to come too. Now, mustachioed 70s detective lookalike Vince did rather stand out at this bohemian party. He was the only one wearing a suit and carrying a briefcase. We were also flanked by three Italian waiters wearing tuxedos. Tuxedos? Tuxedos. We certainly made an entrance. My best friend Petra had been drinking Southern Comfort before we arrived. Do not ever make a joke about her name. She narrowly predated the Blue Peter dog. Petra wrongly assumed that Vince and I were an item and started interrogating him. He tried to protest and showed her numerous photos of his wife and kids. I had already drunk more than one glass of wine, which I no longer do. As I know, it can cause strange happenings, like the one that was about to occur. I was dancing with all the waiters when I spotted that shy, handsome man across the room, you know, the one who hadn't talked to me even I was the only girl at my own party in Ashford, well, if I was to describe him to you now, I suppose he looked like Nottingham's answer to Ben Fogel. Our eyes met, and I think he smiled nervously. For some inexplicable reason, I blame the wine and the men drought. I went straight over to him and shouted over the music. Can I seduce you? At exactly that moment, of course, the music stopped. The whole room including Petra, Vince and the three waiters, held their breath, wondering what he was going to say. As opening lines go, it was memorable. Adrian, Nottingham's answer to Ben Fogel, was speechless. I was later to discover he wasn't much of a talker. In reply to, can I seduce you? He kissed me. Not a peck, a proper gone with the wind job. And that is how, at last, I got myself a boyfriend. It turned out that he was very sporty and we had absolutely nothing in common. But after such a public beginning, we had to try and make it work or risk public humiliation. Back at Dog World, I was reading the pages I didn't sub and noticed a job advert. The Kennel Club was looking for an information officer. Surely that had to be more interesting than subbing show reports. Back in the cottage, I polished off my CV and posted it. 
Due to the distance, I could only see Adrian on the weekend, and that's when all the sporting fixtures took place. These encounters were very brief, as he played every sport ever invented. But we both liked going to the cinema, and that didn't require much talking. Some might see a lack of communication as a negative, but the only crosswords we ever shared were the Guardian's. I was delighted to be offered the job at the Kennel Club, but my bosses at Dog World were surprisingly miffed. Apparently, I was on a rotation to learn every part of the business and was about to be moved on to the breed note department. Old Stafford Summerfield offered me some very sound advice. My dear, you will loathe it. They are ghastly people. We shall welcome you back when you've had enough. My immediate boss, the one who had always forced me to make the tea, had one last chance to try and put me in my place. My last week coincided with the prestigious Pup of the Year competition. What was the shittiest job she could find me? Yes, I was the one picking up poo in the main ring. Of course, the event was televised and there was an Afghan hound with an upset tummy. My first ever TV appearance was not the scoop I had hoped for. I was, it was far too soon to contemplate cohabiting with Ben Adrian Fogel. Besides, he lived in a squat. So I answered the only advert for a flat share in that week's Guardian. It was in Acton with a very strident independent woman who had taken a career break to have a baby on her own. Adrian helped me move all my possessions into the tiny room and I was ready to start my new job at the Kennel Club on Monday morning. Adrian abandoned me to play water polo or something else like, I don't know, sport of some sort, and I set off to explore the dim lights of Acton. I pulled the front door shut and turned right. I could just as easily have turned left. Three houses down, I heard another front door opening and charming little children yelling, Goodbye, Daddy. Daddy was waving back adorably and walking backwards when he bumped into me. That same floppy hair and the stutter, surely not. It was Hugh Philip Grant, my miserable and charming friend from the dog statue stand. What on earth are you doing here? How, 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 how on earth did you track me down? Fatal attraction had yet to render every married man very paranoid. There was still no reassuring him that I wasn't a bunny boiler. We never, ever spoke again. After that day, I would always turn left when I came out of my flat, even though it added five minutes to my commute.